Black chefs, cookbook authors, restauranteurs, and inventors have shaped how we eat and the culture at large. Before the 1970s, Aunt Jemima's pancake box carried the stereotypical image of a black cook, illustrating how the American food industry undervalued Southern cooks and cooking. Today, a new wave of black American chefs safeguards Southern foodways. As they reintroduce recipes in the nation's top kitchens, they humanize how the public sees black chefs. So today, we have a couple of those chefs who are reclaiming our cuisine. Chef Fluellen and Chef Rells, thank you all for joining me today. Hey, Blacked Out content listeners, just wanted to give you a heads up. So this episode was recorded live via Zoom. So I apologize for some potential sound changes, but y'all know how that is. (laughs) Um, But I really wanted to get with you all and let you all know the basis around this episode. Um, I really wanted to do this episode because like most of the episodes, they're framed around themes important to the Black culture. And food is an important staple in our culture. Um, When you think about major life events, weddings, there's always a big to-do around catering. What are we going to eat? And is there an open bar? (laughs) Family reunions. Who is cooking the mac and cheese? And who's making the butter cake, right? Plans are made around food. And even at funerals, right, there's a repast to celebrate the life. Uh, Black eyed peas, green beans, all of that. So at the center of all major Black family functions, there's food. And everything about our culture comes from our history. And that is what Black History Lessons is all about. So take a listen. Um, We go ahead and start off with how history is intertwined um, into the food culture. And it gives a little background into episode five, which is the history of the Black chef in America. Um, I I mean, going back, I mean, to the, the beginning of time since we came over here, we have always been a part of the kitchen scene. Um, you had people in the house cooking, um, well, they say house Negroes cooking, and we served the white man and the white woman all the time. Then we were left with the scraps, and we always made something out of nothing. And even to till this day, um, a lot of the black cuisine is still based on those scraps that are now popularized by the white people. Main thing on the Southern menu that all black chefs in Atlanta have to cook or learn how to cook. If you come down here, it's shrimp and grits. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those things that became a staple and grits are so, are so cheap. Um, and we <laughs> had to deal with that. We had to use those grains to make mm-hmm food for the table to, to, to help us grow and to help us survive those times. And now look at it today, 400 years later, the shit's still on the table. Yep. So the thing is, is we black chefs in history are synonymous because we've always had to deal with food and dealing with food. We deal, we dealt with it all spectrums. We cooked the nice cuts the best leaves, the best grains for the white people, and we had to find a way to flip the scraps to feed ourselves. So mm-hmm. that goes to show you we had a lot to do with food on all spectrums, um, from the good cuts to the bad cuts, and we found 
different ways to use it and and survive off of it. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, what I hear from both of you all is just the resiliency of, you know, our culture as a whole and how we've been able to, you know, take something and, you know, make nothing out of something or, you know, that's that's how we are and, and that's how we've been able to, to grow as a people. So in particular, what, what came into your head and was like, you know what, I want to start cooking. I want to be a chef. Like what, what moment, you know, happened that that's when you made that decision? Well, for me, I think going into Georgia State 2007, I came in as a real estate agent, not real estate agent, real estate major in a, and I just, the market was bad at the time. 2007, 2008. So I changed it to finance. It's a couple finance classes with my thing. I had a personal chef who was my professor in a hospitality class I chose, an elective. And he was like, I do all this fly stuff. I fly jets. I cook for different families. I live in mansions and all this stuff. I was like, you know what? I need to make a decision at this time in my life because I didn't know what I was doing or how I was going to get out of Georgia State. And I was like, I can cook but do I really know how to cook? And he said, I talked to him and he was like, hey, if you really want to do this, get a job in a restaurant or hotel on the line to see if you like it. And that's what I did. So I went and got a job at the W Midtown was my first line cook job. I've cooked in restaurants before, um, but that line job got the spark started for me um, as far as cooking and taking it to another level. Um, I know one of my chefs at the time, he told me that it was gonna take me like 20 years or something to get to where he was at. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to promote me or nothing. And, and within six months, it was a line of all black chefs, first of all, black men and women. Wow. And they, like the chefs that was there before me taught me everything I needed to know. So in about six months, I was working the entire line or knew how to work every station. So I knew that it came easy, but I, I wasn't I wasn't here to wait 20 years to get to where he was at, which was still working for somebody else. So that was my first part in getting into the culinary industry, and that's working at the W Midtown here in Atlanta. Nice, 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 nice. Okay, um, for me, oh, as far as getting into culinary professionally. Um, lots of you not. I had a job. Um, I was working with Verizon. And in the company, after about every six months or so, you do what is called a shift bid. And a shift bid mm-hmm. is pretty much where you pick your schedule, you understand your schedule is based off your stats, based off your numbers. So I have pretty good numbers at the time. And mm-hmm. the schedule that I wanted did not have a supervisor for it just yet. So I picked the schedule, I got the schedule, and they ended up putting the supervisor to that schedule, and I didn't, I assumed, or, yeah, I assumed that I wasn't going to get along or like that. (laughs) So literally on the day that they assigned the supervisor, I, on the Verizon computer, looked up culinary school, (laughs) filled out the application, and it was like, I'm not working with this guy, like, I'm not doing this. Not happening at all. Um, probably about three weeks later, I got my acceptance letter into culinary school. Within those three weeks, I was working with 
that supervisor grew to love the dude, you know what I'm saying? Like me and him, mm-hmm. we were like this while I was working there or whatever. And yeah, it would, the simple fact that I thought I wasn't gonna like somebody is what catapulted me into going into it, you know, looking at it as more than just cooking at home, you know what I mean? And trying to take it to the next level and stuff like that or whatever. So yeah, I pretty much quit one job to pursue my passion because of fear of working with somebody else. So fear actually kicked me in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) Look at this karma. somebody cooking you you don't just oh, yeah. randomly just start cooking you've seen somebody do it you either ate something that was so good that sparked your mind to do it so mm-hmm. um from, in my part my dad was the main cook and grill master and then my grandmother's on all all sides i say all sides mm-hmm. it's like three grandmothers i got like three grandmothers but um you see though you see the food you eat it every thanksgiving and christmas and Mm-hmm. Or I was the kid coming in the house trying to get water, but like trying to eat something too. So, and they was all, I always came in when everybody was cooking. So I'm like, yo, what's y'all cooking? What's what's going on? So I always okay. wanted to know the science behind it and how you make it taste so good, or why we couldn't jump in the house when the rolls was being made, or we couldn't walk, <laughs> or we had to tiptoe through the kitchen or something like that. That's that old grandma uh-huh. cooking right there. <laughs> so See, that always, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it always, it always like. <laughs> my, my interest of why I could do something when food was being cooked because yeah. it was just interesting as hell and I, and I love that part and that's what uh, that's the base influence for a lot of us yeah yeah same for me um, my mother is who I get it, get it from mostly in part um, also my grandmother as well um, I didn't have a relationship with my father but knowing things about my father I know that know he didn't know how to cook he was bomb when it came to cooking food and stuff like that or whatever but um as far as my mother and my grandmother goes yeah i would uh my grandmother would always play music in the kitchen whatever she cooked mm-hmm. and so i would because i love music i would go in there i think in the beginning it started out with me going in there because of the music but mm-hmm. Because she's in there doing things, I have no choice but to pay attention, but to see what she's doing, watch things of that nature. Whenever the food was done, she would make my grandfather's plate and have me walk it upstairs to him and stuff like that or whatever. Um, so yeah, that part came from her. My mother, my mother is short like I am, so she had a step ladder in the kitchen in between uh-huh. the stove and the refrigerator. <laughs> And I would literally sit on that stepladder while she's making any and everything. I was the taste tester when she was baking cakes. Give me the bowl. I'm swiping mm-hmm. my finger around the bowl. So, you know, like Fred said, we've all seen somebody or had something and it just sparked something in our brain that's like, how did you get it like this? How does it taste like this? What's in it that makes it taste like this? You know, you right. know what I mean? 
1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Shortly after, bus boycotts began around the city. The Brenda's Barbecue Pit staff helped organize parts of the boycott, which soon propelled the civil rights movement into the national conversation. Geraldine and Larry Bethune first opened the restaurant in 1942. Back then, it was a nightclub, the Siesta Club, that sold food. It later became Brenda's name for one of her daughters. The restaurant became an unofficial center for the local civil rights movement, holding NAACP meetings, printing flyers, and planning protests. But even after the bus boycotts, Ms. Bethune quietly held lessons to teach other African Americans to read so they could pass the literacy test, which functioned as a way to suppress the black vote during the height of the Jim Crow era. Danetta Bethune, the Bethune's granddaughter, described it as, let's learn how to read, let's learn how to vote. Let's go after our own rights so we never have to be treated in a way that we're not equal to again. In the black community, that's how they lived back then. Everyone helped each other, or else how could you get by, or how could you make it through? Brenda's family run, Brenda is family run to this day, and it still feeds local locals its popular ribs, pig ears, and chopped pork. Hey, like what you hear? And would you like to be part of Black History Lessons? Have a topic you want to learn about? Blacked Out content is always trying to alert the masses with information that relates to our everyday lives through our Blackity Black host, Dr. Stu. So be sure to tweet, comment, leave a review, or DM on Blacked Out content social media to find out more. He was the first American, not just Black, but first American to train as a chef in France. He also introduced European-style mac and cheese, french fries, creme brulee, and ice cream to America. Wow. James Hemings was born in 1765 in Virginia, and at eight years old, he became Thomas Jefferson's slave through inheritance. If the last name sounds familiar, his younger sister, Sally, was also enslaved by Jefferson and later bore several of Jefferson's children. After Jefferson was appointed commerce minister to France in 1784, he and Hemings, then 19 years old, set sail for Paris, which is where Hemings began his cooking career, becoming the first American trained as a French chef. He studied in prestigious French kitchens and trained with a master pastry chef. His most important experience, however, came from the chef at the Chateau de Chantilly, which at the time was considered to have better food than Versailles. In 1787, Hemings became the chef de cuisine at Hotel Le Genoc, Jefferson's personal residence where he cooked for politicians and celebrities. He later would make the dinner for the historic meeting between Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in Virginia, where the two men engaged in political negotiations despite their long-standing feud. Also, James Hennings was immortalized in the mu musical Hamilton in the song, The Room Where It Happens. Hemings was freed in 1796, and after some travel, he returned to Monticello, Jefferson's home in Virginia, to run the kitchen. So real quick, 
want to say it's a yes and a no type of thing. Um, more so yes, the way that I perceive. Um, as far as for me, a culinary artist, I don't know. It's just somebody that not only knows how to cook, but somebody that just knows food, um, knows how to treat food, knows how to invent ingredients together, knows how to, you know, intertwine different things to make nothing out of something, as we were talking about before. Um, and then also somebody that knows how to present the food in such a way to where you don't even want to eat it because it looks so good. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, hold on, wait a minute. Let me grab my phone. Let me take a picture of this. Let me let me post this. You know what I'm saying? So that's the way I look at, you know, a culinary artist. Now, as far as a chef, you know, a chef is just somebody that, you know, just is good at cooking um, versus somebody that can, you know, who is versed in plating and things of that nature. You know what I'm saying? Um, a chef is somebody that can take a, a, a box meal and make it taste good, you know, versus a culinary artist being somebody who can take those scraps and flip it into a five course or, you know, a three-star meal. You know what I mean? So... That's the way that I look at it. I perceive it. Looking it up, um, I came across two words. Um, one is I'm gonna let I'm gonna let them say it, so I don't butcher it. So um, you guys turn your speakers up. Disenio. Disenio. D i s e g n o. It's the physical ability to manifest the concept, meaning. It's a cook's ability to actually cook the food, um, to know how to cook the food properly. And then you have another word called, turn your speakers up again, because I'm not going to butcher this word. Invention. Invention. This is how a chef rethinks how food can be cooked, served, and consumed. Um, and it also... Uh, is the concept of the food before it's even made. Mm. As chefs, in comparing ourselves to artists, or not comparing, and, and, and putting us on the same platform, we already have a vision of what we want to cook, how it's supposed to look, how we're going to cook it, how we're going to prep it. As an artist, they already see the painting, or see the sculpture, or see the music, hear the music before it's already done. Mm -hmm. The physical ability to do it, we already have that, but it takes more so the creative process in our brains to already foresee the final product um, is what separates uh, cooks from chefs and puts us in a category with artists. Uh, again, craftsmanship, Eric Ripper said craftsmanship and artistry um, are two of the things that compares us to artists because you got to learn how to do it and have the skill to do it. But now you got to bring in your own component. You got to bring in your own a vision to what you want the food, uh, your own technique, or your way of eating it or serving the food. And I think that creative process uh, with chefs that we have.
whether it's your plating, whether it's your physical style, how you present yourself, or the food, you have to have those things as an artist because that is how you paint your picture and how we paint our picture on a plate. Um, would you really consider yourself an artist if y'all both do the same, if y'all all do the same thing? I, I don't think so. I think artistry stands out based on personality, skill, and your own vision. Um, and that's in any concept of how you want to present the food, how you want to serve the food, how you want to sell the food. That makes you different. And that, to me, puts you in the limelight of an artist, a chef as an artist. Agricultural scientist, inventor, the peanut man, George Washington Carver is remembered for many things, but his contributions forever changed how modern industries are run. Carver was born into slavery in the early 1860s and went on to earn his master's degree in agricultural science at Iowa State Agricultural College, now known as Iowa State University. In 1896, he moved to Alabama and became the Director of Agricultural Research at the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute. There, he focused on projects to improve Southern agriculture. Through his research, he discovered that cultivating only one crop stripped the land of its nutrients and yielded less bountiful harvests. By introducing peanuts and soybeans to the nutrient-deprived soil, crops could thrive again, a discovery that also could feed Southerners. Once farmers integrated crop rotation into their fields, the South became a new, stronger supplier of agricultural products. You may have heard Carver's name associated with peanuts, and boy, did he love them. Contrary to popular belief, Carver did not invent peanut butter, but he did develop more than 300 other food, industrial, and commercial items with peanuts, such as plastics, dyes, soap, milk, and cosmetics. He also invented 118 products from sweet potatoes, including molasses and postage stamp glue. All right, all right, y'all. Well, they only give us about an hour, but you know what? This conversation was so deep. We went on so many levels that we decided to create a part two. So make sure you tune in next week for that special discussion, as well as a conclusion to episode five of the history of the black chef in America. Until next time, y'all. Thank y'all so much for tuning into this week's episode of Black History Lessons. I'm your host, Dr. Stu. And in the meantime, make sure you follow Blacked Out content on all social media platforms, as well as the host, Dr. Stu, that's D-R-S-T-E-W. And catch up on all the latest episodes of Black History Lessons on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast streaming platforms. Until next time, y'all.